Good morning. Oh, it's dark. Uh, good morning. Welcome to Campus House. We're glad that you're here with us. We know a lot of us are in and out over the summer, but it's still a joy to be able to spend time together when you're here. And if you're joining us for the first time, or even if you've been here all summer, we're doing a sermon series that we're calling Backstory, and it's in the Psalms. Not all the Psalms, but some of the Psalms. And if you've ever read the Psalms before, kind of in the middle of the Bible, they're the prayer book of the Bible, and in the middle of the, some of these prayers, at least at the beginning, will tell you, they'll give you little clues as to what story they're a part of, the backstory that is involved. And so today we come to Psalm 51. So as we're going through these psalms and looking at every prayer in light of its backstory, it makes a lot of sense, right? Sometimes we can just come to a psalm and read it and think, okay, that's an interesting prayer. But don't all of your prayers, aren't they prompted by the situations you find yourself in, the relationships you find yourself a part of, the circumstances or the thoughts or the feelings that you find inside yourself? And it's the same with the Psalms. They're all written by real people in history who have walked with God and who have been praying these prayers out of actual situations. Now, sometimes the Psalms don't tell us exactly the situation, and you can infer it or you can figure it out. And other times they directly tell us. And so we're looking at these Psalms in light of their backstory, these real people, because as they wrote these Psalms, these prayers... To God, these prayers are intended to show us how we can consider in our own lives how we can come to God in any and every circumstance. It's amazing the range that the Psalms have, the kinds of prayers that you see there. And Psalm 51 is one of the most famous prayers in the Bible, uh, probably the most famous confession of sin, at least. And its backstory comes from 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Here's how we know that I'll read Psalm 51 to you. And there's the very beginning, the little intro paragraph. So before you see verse 1, if you're reading in your Bibles and you want to follow along, it's also on the screen. It says, to the choir master, which means it was probably meant to be sung. And then it says, a psalm of David. So a psalm written by King David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That's our, our little introductory and paragraph that tells us you should go back to 2 Samuel 11 and 12 to figure out what this is about. But before we go there, let me simply read the psalm to you in its entirety. Here's David's confession. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know that my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. For the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And the bulls will be offered to you on your altar. So this is David's confession, and you can see it's a confession right off the bat. He says, have mercy on me, O God, which is literally saying, O Lord, I don't deserve it. Please give me what I don't deserve. Have mercy on me. So he's praying this prayer of confession, and he mentions his sin multiple times. He mentions blood guiltiness, he says. And that's because if you go back to 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and you're li- you can go there if you'd like. I'm not going to read both of those chapters to you, but I'd like to summarize the story of, what, of what's going on in David's life. Why did he pray this prayer of confession? Why is he asking God for mercy? So in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, David has been a king for quite a while now. He's not a young man anymore. He's more in his middle age. He's mature. He's made lots of Uh, big decisions, and he's been walking faithfully with God the whole time in general. But David's army, it says, goes off to war, because that's just what it says. That's what they did in the springtime. They went off to war. So David's army goes off to war, and typically the kings would go with him, but it says, David stayed at home. Just a little comment, but David stayed at home. And one day as he's at home, he gets up in the afternoon off his couch from watching Netflix, uh, and he looks out over the rooftop. He goes and stands on top of his palace. So he's just been lounging around while his army's off at war. And he looks out over the, roof, over the roofs of the city. And uh, a lot of times people would take baths on the roof, which seems weird, but most people's houses weren't that much taller than everyone else's. But David is in a palace, so his is. And he sees a stunningly beautiful woman taking a bath. And she's up on the roof. And so he sends messengers to inquire, well, who is that? And so the messengers come back and they say, oh, this, her name is Bathsheba. She is the wife of Uriah. And Uriah is one of his own loyal soldiers who's off at war. But David doesn't just inquire and get information. He sends the messengers back and he says, bring her to me. And so when it said in the beginning of the psalm, it says, uh, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, that's just a nice way of saying he had an affair. David sends for Bathsheba, and he brings this beautiful woman into his palace, and he sleeps with her, and then he sends her away. He sleeps with her, and in many ways, discards her, just sends her home. You know, in some ways, this is how, what sin is like. It starts off simple enough, right? It's just a normal afternoon. Literally, it says, and then it just happened one afternoon. That's what it says in 2 Samuel 11.1. 1. It just happened one afternoon. David's not quite doing his full duty as a king. He sees something beautiful, and instead of simply appreciating beauty for what it is, he pursues it in order to take it. And that's this really a stunning story. And it's really like the beginning. I went on some road trips recently 
while I was going on vacation, and I listened, we listened to a lot of these like true crime podcasts, and it's striking to me that this is a lot like David's life. It's like Serial or uh, To Live and Die in L.A. or something, where it starts off simply enough. These people who just are getting to know each other, they appreciate each other, they're friends, they like each other, they see something beautiful, something happens, and then as it goes on, somehow someone ends up dead. Somehow, people start having affairs, and you learn that all these characters in the story, they're so complex. There's so much else going on beneath the surface. Every one of these podcasts is based on that, and we're basically seeing that in David's life. If you have read David's story up till now, this event is shocking. This isn't David. This isn't what he does. It's a stunning story, because then he doesn't stop there. It's never this simple, right? He has an affair and then just sends her home. But it's never that simple. What happens? Well, Bathsheba sends him a message and says, I'm pregnant. So David once again sends a messenger. But this time he sends a messenger out to the battlefield. And he brings Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back from battle. And what he tells him is essentially, here, you're on furlough. Here's a leave. You can, you can not join the army for it. Let's take a month off. It's been hard fighting, Right. Come, join me. And he gives him a feast at the king's table, and then he says, go home. Why? Because David's hope is that Uriah is going to go home, sleep with his wife, and it's close enough in time that everyone will think, oh, look, Uriah came back for leave, and now his wife's pregnant. Except it's never that simple, is it? Uriah is an incredibly faithful and loyal soldier, and he can't wrap his head around this idea that he would get to go home when all of his friends are dying on the battlefield. So he sleeps on David's porch. He won't leave. He won't go home. He says, who am I that I should get this special treatment? So he refuses. David even tries to get him drunk so he can send him home and sleep with his wife, and he won't do it. So then David sends Uriah back to the battlefield, knowing that Uriah won't do this thing. In this moment, Uriah is far more faithful to his calling than David has been. And he sends Uriah with a letter. And in the letter, he is supposed to give the letter to a general. And the general receives the letter. And in the letter, it says, put Uriah on the front lines and then don't help him. Put him in the fiercest part of the battle and then pull back from him. So he sends Uriah with his own death certificate. And by the next day, Uriah is dead. David has murdered him without actually doing the killing himself. This is the backstory to Psalm 51. And everything is backfiring on David. His his desires that he had been awakened that day, that he pursued, everything is backfiring. And then what he does is once the funeral for Uriah has occurred and once the time for grieving has passed, he takes Bathsheba and marries her. Now she's his wife. So again, it could at least maybe look like they slept together after they got married, and she's pregnant with their kid. And what you don't see in 2 Samuel 11 is any sorrow on David's part. But then 2 Samuel 12 begins with this man named Nathan, who's basically David's pastor. And David's pastor shows up because the Lord has told Nathan what has happened. And it says at the very end of chapter 11, what David did displeased the Lord. It didn't displease David, but it displeased the Lord. So the Lord sends somebody, his pastor in this case, into his life. And Nathan shows up and greets David and says, I have a, I have a story to tell you. And David's about to get a sermon that he doesn't know is a sermon. 
And so what he hears is this story about a rich man who has many, many sheep, and the rich man has a guest come over, and he wants to throw a party, a special party for this guest who's visiting him. And instead of using one of his own sheep, he goes to his neighbor who's extremely poor and has one lamb, and he takes that man's lamb, he slaughters the lamb, prepares a feast, and gives it to his guest. That's the story. And David as a just king, as a king who's called to uphold the law, says, that man must die for what he has done. He has stolen what is not his. He's furious. He's really angry. And then Nathan just turns and says, you are the man. And then David says, oh, I have sinned against the Lord. It looks like David's getting away with adultery and murder. But God sends, just as David sent away for all these things, God sends someone to him. And this is what, how all confession starts. You are the man. You are the woman. When you come to that place where you realize your wrongdoing is exposed to you and you have to own up to it. Here's what happened. David blew up his life that day. And he, months later, because of when Nathan comes and says to him, he realizes the damage that he has caused, the harm and the hurt that he has caused. He comes to see that he misused his power, that he committed adultery and murder. He manipulated people with his words and his actions. He used his power unjustly in order to get what he wanted. One commentator says, this is David's blackest moment of self-knowledge. Don't we all have moments like that? Have you? Moments of deep regret, when you realize the effects of what you've done, and maybe you didn't even see how great it was until it was exposed, maybe by someone else telling you. David had this time where he deeply harmed others and he blew up his life. And when we become aware that there are things wrong with us that we can't seem to stop, you know that thing that you do that you don't want to do but you keep doing? Sometimes there's these patterns we've developed we can't seem to stop, and other people might even see this within us, and we hate when they call it out. But often they're right. What do you do? What do you do when you blow up some part of your life? Is there a way out? Is there a way to fix it? Is there something that can undo the harm that we've done to ourselves and others? What if when you come face to face with your own capacity for harm, there was actually a process to get through it? Not even just to get through it, but to come out on the other side transformed, renewed, restored, what if you could be made whole again after a terrible wrong that feels like it has broken you? When you're a part of something that you know you are at least in part to blame. Something went wrong. Is there a process to put life back together again? And if there is, wouldn't you want it? Wouldn't you want to go through that process? There is a process. The Bible calls it repentance. And that might seem really disappointing after what we just talked about. Wait, you're just saying repentance? I just have to do that thing where I go say, sorry. Sorry I did that. But you, you know if you feel that way at all when you think repentance is just saying sorry, and then you feel like, is that really it? Is that all there is to it? Is that, is that enough? It's probably because you and I both know that sometimes we've said sorry, and it's really not that adequate to change anything, either about us or the circumstance. It never really fixes that much. And that's because just simply saying sorry isn't the biblical process of repentance, which is why we also then maybe haven't experienced the power or the transformation that comes 
when we go through the real process. And that's what Psalm 51 does. It opens up to us the process of sitting before God in repentance. You know, some, some of you may think as well, uh, have you ever thought this? Doesn't Jesus say, repent and believe and believe the gospel? And this is, that's for becoming a believer, right? That's how you become a Christian. You just got to repent. Isn't that what it is? But here's the thing to keep in mind. David is repenting, but David, like we said, is a seasoned believer. He's not a young man, and he's believed since he was very young. This isn't David coming to faith for the first time. This is David growing in his faith. Because repentance isn't a one-time thing. It's an ongoing process. It isn't just for becoming a believer, but growing as a believer. Because we are always and ever in need of God's mercy. And so David's showing us this process we, we get to go through. And I want to highlight a few things to you as we go through it. So to repent, to find healing from your sin. What does it mean to be healed of sin? How do we participate in this process that renews and restores us when we've blown up our life? Four things. We have to stop denying that this is true of us. We have to start confessing our actual sin. We have to begin to hate our sin, and we have to receive God's mercy. We have to stop denying that this is true of us. We have to start confessing our particular sins. We have to hate those sins and come to hate them and actually then receive God's mercy. So because this psalm is so rich, I'm going to mostly spend time on the first five verses. I won't get into every other part, but we will reference other parts as we go. And so the first thing, owning uh, or stop denying, stop denying that this is true of us, which is a pretty hard thing to do. Let me read you why. I'm going to start with verse five, actually, to describe that. Because if you've ever read this before, isn't it a little strange, it seems? This is what David says as he's praying for mercy. He then says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And that's a fairly accurate translation for sure, except that to English speakers, it sounds really weird. It basically sounds like David's mom sinned when she conceived him, like maybe she had an affair or something was wrong in her marriage or whatever. That's not what it's saying, though. It's not saying that uh, the way he was conceived was, was immoral. That's not what it's saying. At first glance, it might look like that. But what David is saying is that from the very beginning of his life, from conception, he's been in sin. That's his condition. That's, that's what he's saying. In sin, I was conceived, as in this was my condition from the very time I was in the womb. And so here, here's what David is saying. It's really kind of shocking. It's hard to take in. I, Lord, I committed adultery. I committed murder because from the time I was an embryo, this was in me. Whoa, what? What, what, what he's saying is this sin, this terrible thing, adultery and murder, um, that wasn't a freak accident. It was in character. It was an extreme expression of the warped nature that he already had. And that can sound really harsh. Doesn't that sound really negative? It sounds really harsh, really negative, kind of a downer. Wait, we have this sin nature that we've been born with? Aren't most people good and occasionally do bad things? Now, I was having a lot of trouble sleeping this week. And on one of those late nights that I was still up, I 
went back and started re-watching one of my favorite, favorite British crime shows that came out a few years ago. It's called Broadchurch. I really like British crime shows for some reason. And I was watching this show, Broadchurch, and I, was in, I got into episode two. And uh, the two main detectives are these, uh, or main characters are detectives. And one of them is this grisly, seasoned, hardened detective who's seen a lot of ugly things and been in the big cities. And there's this other one. He comes to this small town because of something in his past that we don't know about yet in, in episode two. And he gets partnered with a, a woman who's from this town called Broadchurch. And it's a really small town. It's like 15,000 people. Everyone's nice to each other. It's this seaside community. People like to go on vacations there. And she thinks everyone's great and good. And part of the show is very interesting. It's very theological, actually. And they start having these ongoing conversations about the nature of people. And so as they're starting to interview people because of a crime that was committed, an 11-year-old boy was murdered in their town. And it's the kind of thing where they say, this kind of thing doesn't happen here. This doesn't happen here, not in our town. That's not like our town. And they're having this conversation as they're talking to the parents of the murdered boy. And the, the grizzly detective, his name's Hardy, and Hardy says, I wonder why they gave us a list of possible suspects. Do you think they're trying to avert our attention away from them? And she says to him, oh, how could you even think that? These, these parents just lost their kid, you know? Of course they didn't kill Danny. And he says, he says to Ellie, Ellie Miller, the other detective, he says, Ellie, you have to learn not to trust and she says very sarcastically, oh, do I? Oh, right, I forgot. That's why you were sent to become my partner, so I could learn from all the benefits of your, uh, your cynical experience. And he says, no, you need to understand, Miller. Anybody's capable of murder given the right circumstances. And she says, no, most people have a moral compass. And he says, compasses break. I won't tell you any more about the show because it's really good. And the point of this sermon is not for you to go watch the show, although great if you do. But here's what you need to know. Uh, for the rest of the show, Ellie becomes utterly shocked as they have to go through and figure out who this murderer is because they learn things about the people who she's been close to since she was a child that shock her. Wait, they did that? Even if they aren't the murderer, she learns things about people that shock her. This sunny, small seaside town in England, and it blows up her life in the process of them having to do these, this murder investigation. And, be, and this is the whole point that David is making in his prayer. I was brought forth in iniquity from conception. I've been a sinner. And what he's saying is we're all able to do things we never would think possible for us to do. And if we don't, he's like, like Hardy says, Anybody in, the certain, in certain circumstances is capable of murder. We say, no, no, of course not. And maybe it's just fortunate that probably most of us won't find ourselves in that circumstance. The Bible describes sin far more as a condition first than as bad behaviors. And the bad behaviors occur because of the condition that we are in. It's like cancer. You get sick because you have cancer. You don't get sick and then we, we decide, oh, it's you know, you have something else called cancer. It's cancer is what makes you sick. Sin is what makes us sick. It makes us able to do things that we uh, don't think we could possibly do. It's because of hate that there's racism. It's the underlying condition of hate is what produces racism. It's because of greed that people extort and steal and cheat. It's because of this underlying heart condition that the actions then occur or the words occur, right? Right? 
prophet Jeremiah described it as this incurable disease. He says it's a self-deception. A sin is a self-deception within us. And here's the thing, though, that we have to see. If we're starting to understand that maybe there's the seeds of this ugly thing within us, even since birth, what's then remarkable about this psalm is David isn't saying this because he's like, see, it's not my fault. Don't you see, Lord? This was always in me. I can't help it. It was my nature. He's not using it as an excuse. He's saying it's the explanation for why I did what I did. Because notice verses 1 to 3. Five times you see the words that the Bible uses for sin. There's three words the Bible uses for, for sin. One of them is sin. The other two are transgression and iniquity. And look what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This isn't an excuse where he's pushing it away. See, it's just my nature. It's my family background. It's No, no, no. He says, it's there and it's in me from the time I was born. Just like all people, I was born into that condition. But it is mine. I did these things still. I acted upon my nature. So here's the first thing what we have to stop doing. Or we have to stop denying that we are actually capable of sin. And that we are far more capable of doing things than we would ever like to admit. Especially before we do the things that we wouldn't want to admit. See, sin, the word sin is this expression for a, a mistake, a failing, a failure to hit the target. There's a target for us to reach in terms of what we are as people. And we often fail to reach it in thought, word, or deed. Or the word iniquity, it goes even deeper. It kind of, in one sense, it's like a crooked road. And it's describing that within our character... We have this crooked road built within us, a waywardness that we produce faulty actions out of. And then transgression is really when you cross a line. You know when you cross somebody or someone crosses your boundaries, you don't like it? You know, they keep trying to get something from you. You're like, no, I don't want that. They're That's a transgression. They've, they've transgressed. They have um, trespassed over the boundary marker and have taken what isn't theirs. And so it's also then a willful thing. It's not just a condition, but then out of that, we have this willful nature of like, you can't, don't do this. And then you're like, well, now I'm going to go do it. I willfully choose to go do it. So the backstory for this psalm, David is saying, requires us to understand, understand the birth story of sin. And that from our birth, sin is in us. And this is really difficult for us. I'm spending significant time on this because I, to me, including me, this is extremely difficult it's very hard to hear. It's hard to understand because I often believe, like everybody else, that I'm mostly a good person who does some bad things sometimes. And I'm not saying that we're not made in the image of God or that we don't do good things because another part of the Bible describes how we do incredibly good things, and it's by God's grace that we do it. But right now, we have this dual nature in a way. We are able to do good, but we also are trapped in sin. And so even the good we might want to do, we cannot do. And the reason why we struggle to say, well, look, I didn't commit adultery, I didn't commit murder, is because we see this as a qualitative difference rather than a quantitative one, right? Uh, so I didn't, I didn't sin to that degree, so I'm not that bad. And what, what David is saying, no, the quality of sin is within all of us from the very beginning of our birth, from our conception. The seed is there. It's just good that in many ways, by God's grace, most of us 
don't have the opportunity or we are able to resist by his grace that the seed never grows into a tree big enough that we could call it murder. But Jesus says that if you even speak ugly words to your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. So what it's saying is, this is more complex than we might like to first believe, but often we then we have to stop denying that this is our nature, that it is in us, and we are capable of far more than we'd like to admit. But the reason why it's worth spending time on this, the reason why we have to see it, is because when we stop denying this sin, this ability within us, we are actually then also capable of beginning to see how God's grace can restore us from this nature. But you can't be restored to something you can't admit, from something you can't admit. If sin is much more than a tiny occasional mistake, but it's an ingrained character quality that I have to fight against, yet God is the one who can give me the character, the new character quality to fight against it, then there is great room for us to say, I'm not surprised anymore by my nature, but I'm amazed at the grace and the mercy of God. And this is what causes us to do the second thing, which is after we stop denying our nature, we start confessing our actual sin. So once we own up to our sin condition, we stop denying the harm that we're capable of. It's not quite so shocking, even if it's still shocking. Then we have this ability to start coming before God to confess what we've done to him. And that's what David is seeking to do in this psalm. Um, And this is very different, very different than just what what maybe is kind of popular today in some ways, kind of so-called vulnerability, which in in some senses is an exhibition, like putting our stuff out there because it's kind of cool to be messy. Like David isn't bringing his, talking about or confessing his sin because he hopes that other people um, or even God are like, you know, it's okay. See, we're all messy. He's not saying it's okay, right, God? He's saying it's not okay. And why is that? Because God says it's not okay. It said in 2 Samuel, God, God is displeased with what David had done. This isn't just this like nice, open honesty to let people in to like, you know, I'm human too. We already said we're all human. That's our nature. What David is doing is he's not trying to parade his messiness before others. He's trying to present his sin before a holy God. And so confession isn't an exhibition. That's not the point. It's not seeking to draw attention to our brokenness, but seeking to bring our brokenness before God. And so when we start confessing, it's really important that when we start confessing, we make a full confession. And that's hard because that means I have to take full responsibility for the things I've done. And I don't know about you, but I find that I like to make excuses. Blame shifting is another way to put it. And this has been there since Genesis chapter 3. But here's why I think David is trying not to do this. And if we go back another verse, Psalm 51 verse 4, it says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So, Lord, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What does that mean, the second part of that? Justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What's he saying? He says, Lord, if you were to judge me right now, absolutely justified. No excuses. There's no trying to get out of this. I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. David says that to the Lord in this prayer. I think what's interesting and really convicting and challenging to me as I was sitting in this is that when he prays this, when he noticed, when he comes against this sin nature and then he realized the specific ways in which it played out in his life, adultery, murder, manipulation, This is what he does. He says, Lord, I have done evil. And I was thinking about this. Have I ever sat before the Lord and then said, I have done evil? 
I have said, Lord, I've made mistakes. Lord, I sinned against you. But have ever even named that and gone, Lord, I have done evil. I have done evil in your sight, and you are absolutely justified to take me to task over this. How many of us pray that way? Not simply, ah, sorry, God, I, I messed up again. No, he just said, he says, I have sinned, I have done evil even. What is in your eyes, evil. You are the judge. I, I thought I was, I was fine. I didn't even have that much remorse over it. But you're the one who defines right and wrong. This is what he says, you're just in your judgment, verse four. That means I deserve whatever you give me, Lord. I'm gonna take full ownership without excuse. And then he says in verse three, if we backed up again, he says, my sin is ever before me. And so what he's saying is, it's my sin that's the problem. It's my sin. He's not blaming his family background, right? We said, he's not feeling sorry for himself now, actually. This is the other thing that I think, about you, but I find myself trapped in this a lot, self-pity. I feel guilty, I know I've done something wrong, and then sometimes I blame shift and I say, you know, yeah, I did this, but you know, they did that and this person did this, and it's, that's true. They probably did sin too, but am I ever willing to sin and go, no excuses, Lord. This is my part. I have played this role. I have done this thing. You are justified in whatever your judgment is against me. But the other things we might do are things like relativizing, saying, you know, yeah, that wasn't the best thing to do, but who's to say, you know, what's really right or wrong here? And he says, no, 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 you are the judge. You are the just one who's able alone to call out what is just. There's no relativizing here. There's no, you know, it could be wrong. Some people say it's wrong. Some people say it's not. Who knows? David's saying, no, 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 it's wrong. You've told me, Lord, in your law, in your word, you have said adultery and murder is wrong. So instead of blame shifting, like Adam and Eve did in the garden, it's just mostly just being angry and complaining about the other things other people have done around you than actually confessing. He instead says, I own this completely. And so when we start confessing, we are agreeing with God. We are agreeing with God that we are actually sinners and that we have done very particular things. It has expressed itself in very particular ways. Uh, this old confession called the Westminster Confession of Faith in its section on repentance says, we must repent of our particular sins particularly. And I find that really helpful because David is not trying to get out of it anymore. He's now, after months of hiding or months of denying it, months of not feeling sorrow, he's now fully owning up to himself before God. And there's a way to do repentance that actually then leads you into life rather than death. Because here's what happens when we blame shift or when we relativize or when we minimize and we say it's not quite as bad as it really might be or when we self-pity when we just get stuck in ourselves and feeling bad that we've done this again. None of that leads to life, does it? Have you ever had that experience? I feel like it, I do this all the time to myself, where you then beat yourself up because you do think it's wrong, or you have agreed with God that it is wrong, but then we, we almost judge ourselves. We still put ourselves in the judgment seat, and we have this self-pity or this guilt complex. It's so hard for us to get rid of it. It just lingers, right? Well, this is where once you start confessing, we're able to go a step further. And I think this is the part where it's been most difficult for me and maybe as I think about the Christians around me, where we get stuck on, okay, I can confess particularly. I can say I did wrong things. Lord, I've sinned. I can even come to say, oh, I've done evil. I'm sorry. But that's often where it stops. But that's why it also feels like a trap. Because I just still feel stuck in the guilt of it. Yeah, God forgives me. Yeah, he's merciful, right? Or 
Are, are you that way at all? Do you ever feel that exhaustion? I was talking to a friend recently who noticed they had done something wrong, but then they realized that they were just stuck in self-pity. So as they were trying to repent for what they were doing wrong, they repented of their self-pity. And they're like, that, that's what opened the door, though, to going, I am not trapped in this. And here's, here's what happens when something actually starts to take hold of our hearts and change it. This is the power of repentance. Because the Bible actually has this phrase where it describes there's a repentance unto death and there's a repentance unto life. Acts eleven eighteen. it talks about how people have received, it's like a gift. So you're only able to even confess this way if God gives it to you as a gift. And it's repentance unto life. Or in 2 Corinthians 7, Verse 10, it says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, leads us back into our salvation without regret. That's the phrase that gets me. But worldly grief or the other kind of grief produces death in us. So he's saying in 2 Corinthians 7, it's saying there's this kind of repentance that when you go through the process, it actually washes away your regret. Whoa, I definitely want that because I don't tend to get to that place. I tend to sit in it and beat myself up for a really long time. And sometimes it's a process, so it will take time. But the third thing then is we have to hate sin. We come to actually hate the sin. And this is the difference uh, between self-pity or, let's say, even when we confess our sin and we acknowledge that we've done something wrong, this is the part that takes us to the next step. Here's, remember verse 4, how he says, Lord, you and you alone have I sinned? Against you and you alone have I sinned. It's a tiny phrase, but it's really important because he says, you, you alone. And in the Bible, that's a pretty significant thing. It happens a couple times in the psalm, actually. He even says, God, oh God. Like, so you, you ever think about that when you're in grief or something, or you're, you're at a funeral, or something has happened? Uh, you know, for example, going back to Broadchurch when the 11-year-old boy had been murdered, his parents are like, my boy, my boy, right? They don't just say, oh, my son. Why do, why do we repeat something? It's, we do the same thing, actually. It's a Semitic hyperbole in Judaism. It's this repetition because it's getting at this heartbreak, right? When you repeat it like that, you know there's heartbreak involved. You know, Jesus does this on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't say, my God, why did you forsake me? So that we don't confuse it with a philosophical question. He's crying out in agony. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or Jesus does this also in the Gospels when he's teaching his disciples. And he says, if anyone would follow after me, this isn't so much of a repetition, but he says, you must hate your father and mother if you would follow after me. And you're like, what? Doesn't the Bible talk about honoring your father and mother? And the answer is yes. So it's, it's a hyperbole, which means Jesus isn't saying, actually go and hate your parents. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that when you follow me, when you truly have me as the first allegiance in your heart, by comparison, in a hyperbolic way, almost everything else could be like hate. He's not saying go actually hate. He's saying it's like that. It's like when this becomes your first allegiance, everything else pales in comparison. And the same thing is happening here in this song. Psalm, when uh, David says, for you and you alone, he's saying, this has broken my heart. And this is what happens when we come to hate sin. Here's the difference, right, between um, staying stuck in the guilt. Why do we stay stuck in the guilt? Because we look and we say, I have broken God's law. And what David is saying is, yes, I've broken God's law, but first and foremost, I've broken God's heart. I've broken his love. 
Have you ever done this, right? You know you've done something wrong, and then you try really hard, and you repent, you say you're sorry, and then you want to do better, and then you do it again, right? And it feels like, why isn't there any power for me to change? What's wrong? How does this keep happening? Why do I keep doing this? And, and we say, okay, I try again, and you're like, okay, I know. God, God, te- God says lots of things that are really important, like loving my neighbor, but then I fail to love my neighbor. He tells me to keep my ways pure, and then I looked at pornography. Or, Why did I do this again? Man, I, I broke God's law again. I broke God's law again. And what David is getting at here is I broke God's love. If the, if the thing that's true about me is I do have a sin nature, I am very capable of doing things I don't want to admit that I could do. He's also saying what's very true is the first sin, the first sin that happens isn't breaking the law. The first sin isn't the action. It's the repudiation, the rejection, the denial of the relationship that we have with God. Right? So let's, let me give you an example. Why might you and I lie? Why would we not tell the truth? The motivation for lying is that you and I, not first that we just don't like the truth, but that we wanted to put ourselves in the place of God. We decided how to live our various life circumstances in a way that seemed best to us. And the way that seemed best to us in the moment is to hide the truth in order to get what we wanted. So we put something else in God's place. If you lie, so the, for example, let's say you lied to somebody so that you could make yourself look better than you actually are. You cover up your flaws, right, to someone who might find out about them, and then not like you. Well, then what, what lying does, it's a way for me to preserve my reputation. It's a way for me to preserve my image before other people. It's a way for me um, to, be, and why would I do that? Because I care a lot more about what other people think of me than about maybe what God thinks of me. When God wants me to be able to confess and be honest that actually I really do have these flaws. So what have I done? I've put human opinion in the place of God's opinion. If you lie on a business deal or to get ahead in school, you're saying, what I, what I most want, what I most desire is high achievement or success or security, right? So that I can feel important or validated or worthwhile. That means that I've put my worth in something that I can achieve rather than in God and what he's achieved for me, rather than the love that he's already given, the relationship he's already sought. That's how, yeah, I broke God's law. One of the Ten Commandments is you should not lie. But I did that only because I broke the first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods before me. The reason I lied is that I wanted something else more than God himself. So the first sin, the sin beneath the sin, is that I have rejected God's love, and I have rejected his relationship with me. And so I've chosen to pursue a whole different path. Like our main sin isn't first against God's law. Our main sin is first against God. And we break, when our hearts break that we've broken his heart rather than our hearts break that we've broken his law and we just want to do better, it's the, it's the gateway to being able to have the power to hate sin and start to actually overcome it because we start to love God. Instead of focusing on loving myself again in a way that self-pity does, where I say, I just wish I was better. I wish I was better than this. I wish I looked better. I wish I did better. I wish I was better. It's now saying, Lord, I am not better. And I am heartbroken that I have walked this way with you. You are my first love. You are the first thing. You are the one who declared what was good, right, and just anyway that I broke. 
So when I break my relationship with you, that's the only reason I've gone and done these other things. So when David says, you and you alone I have sinned, that seems odd because he definitely sinned against Bathsheba by committing adultery. He definitely sinned against Uriah by committing murder. But what he's saying is, it's, it's hyperbole. Yeah, he did sin against them. But the thing is, he would have never sinned against them if he hadn't sinned against God. The wrongdoing that he does would never have occurred unless he had first said, Lord, I'm literally a king, David's literally a king, but I'm actually the king of my life, and I choose how I want to do things. And that's the sin beneath the sin, is that underneath of everything, there's this seed within us from our birth that says, no one tells me how to live my life. And God says, I only want to tell you what it looks like to live a good life, because I love you first. The law comes second. Friends, this is where we come to the end and have to say this fourth piece, then it's so crucial, is that we receive God's mercy. And what David is doing, as we said in those first three verses, have mercy on me, O God. And then do you see what he says? According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So what is he saying? Lord, it is in character for me. It is in character for me to do things that I would never even want to admit but you know what it's in character for you to do? It's in character for you to faithfully, consistently, unfailingly extend your love and your mercy to broken humanity. And this is the power for our salvation, is that God never changes. There's never a moment where when we come and confess even the worst of things, murder and adultery before him, that he is unable to forgive. He is absolutely able and wants to forgive, but we need to come to that process with him to not simply say, I'm sorry, or I did a few bad things, but oh Lord, how I've broken your heart. How I have walked against you and you only first. And this is what he can do when that happens. This kind, merciful God who is committed to forgiving us to those who turn to him, means that come hell or high, high water, come all the consequences of our sin, come all the brokenness in our relationships, come terrible weather in our insides and how we feel, he is still saying, I will not fail you even when you have failed me. I will not, I cannot. It's in character for him to never fail. And this is the only reason we can even bring this prayer of repentance and confession to him in the first place. Because his love is undeserved. We are undeserving. So we couldn't earn it. So he's freely gift giving it to us. This constant, compassionate God who we can cry out to again and again. That's why repentance is a process. And why the more we do it, the more we are willing to admit particularly what we've been, been doing and what we've been about. The more particularly we say, Oh, I see again that you are this gracious. Once again, you can heal me. Once again, you still love me. Once again, you won't discard me. David sinned and discarded Bathsheba. We sin and God refuses to discard us when we come back to him in repentance. He says three, right? Here's the thing we've seen about this passage. Three words for sin, sin, transgression, and iniquity. You know those three words for God also? There's mercy, grace, and compassion. And then there's also three words about what David is desiring this compassionate, merciful God to do. Blot out my transgression, wash away my sin, cleanse me from my iniquity. All three words of sin are also the things that God can do. You know, these words blot out. Blot it out. 
as if God has, as if on this piece of paper is written out all the ugliness that we can do and commit. And God dips his quill into the inkwell of his grace and he just starts blotting it out. It is covered over is what that means. Or he says, cleanse me from my sin. Or, or wa- I'm sorry, wash away my sin, right? Wash away. This is, this is uh, just like today, it would be the same. It's this laundry terminology. You know those spots, you know, Lady Macbeth, out, out spot. You know, like a spot she can't get out, right? Because of the murder, the, the sin she's committed. This is God who, who is able to wash that away. Like a laundry, a stain that you can't get out. He can wash away. Do you have things in your life that you feel like can never be washed away? It doesn't mean they're necessarily forgotten by us. But they do not hold any more power. They are not the stain on your life when God comes and washes over the stain with his mercy. It is no longer what is true of you. It is no longer the thing that marks you forever is what it's saying. I was, when I was on Lake Superior a couple weeks ago, I, I saw it was incre- this incredible spot, and there was incredible beauty. I don't, have you ever had this happen? I saw the incredible beauty of this, this landscape where it was, and then I suddenly felt sorrowful and guilty. Like, what is going on? Why is that? Because sometimes I realize I see something incredible be- be- incredibly beautiful, and I feel terrible at moments because I feel the weight of, like, I don't deserve beauty in a way because I started to think about all the beautiful things that I've marred. That I've done damage to relationships. Like, here's this incredible beauty, and I think, if I was to live on this land, would I actually harm it rather than help it? Right? Like, isn't that what we, and we contend with that. Sometimes I see beauty, and I feel sorrow because I recognize that I mess beautiful things up. And then I sat down to pray on this rock that's by Lake Superior, and I was watching the tide come in, and I felt like I didn't have any words for it. And as I watched, there was this rock, this lone rock that kind of stuck up a bit out of the water. But the tide kept hitting it. And no matter which way it was coming in, the, wa- the, ro- the rock just kept being washed over by the water. No matter which way the tide came, no matter how much was going on around, it just kept getting washed and washed. And it suddenly hit me like this psalm, washed clean. And that's the process we are in with God as we repent. There is never a moment where you're not being washed clean, washed clean. Yes, that happened. Yes, I did that. Yes, I admit it. Also, this is true of you and him. You are washed clean. It's an unceasing tide that you can't break. It doesn't go away. The washing never stops. And that's how we become, as he says, the third word is cleansed, which is really the Old Testament word for saying, if you go read Leviticus, that strange book with so many laws, why, does, why are all the laws there about all this ritual cleansing? Because that's what makes you able to stand before God when you are cleansed. So what it's saying is you now have the right to stand before God again. Before him, the one who you alone have sinned, you are clean. Friends, God washes our sin and renews our hearts. That's what it's saying. Renew in me a right spirit, David says. Give me a clean heart, O God, as he says later in these other other verses. Purge me with hyssop, it says. So what David starts saying is, he's a part of this system of sacrifices, but what he says is, Purge me with hyssop, which is totally not a thing that happens in the Old Testament, in the laws. David is supposed to go give a sacrifice to be cleansed from this sin, but there is no sacrifice for murder and adultery. And what he says is, Lord, I don't even know what can cover this over. Purge me with hyssop. You know, that was the word that was used in Exodus when God told them to put blood, the sacrifice of blood, over their doors. And anybody who was covered with the blood was freed from any judgment. 
Jesus comes along in the New Testament and is, is lifted up to him a hyssop branch. And they offer for, to dull the pain with some wine while he's dying on the cross and he refuses. And then he spills his own blood to cover over our sin. And this is the thing, when we were denying even that our nature might be sinful, Jesus saw that but never denied us, so much so that he would go to the cross, he would lay down his own life, his own blood, in order to free us and give us the forgiveness of sins. He is the one. David only saw a glimpse of this, but we get to see the full thing. In Jesus Christ, this is what we are receiving constantly. His presence with us is the washing. He has freed you from guilt. And when you know him in that, and you know the grace, that he wouldn't run away, deny us when we denied him, that he would confess his love for us when we wouldn't even confess our sin. When he would come and hate our sin so much that when we couldn't take care of it, he would die for it, then you know the meaning of mercy and grace, that you have something you never could have earned, but he longed and loved to give you. You know why? Because it's in character for him. He would go so far as to die and then rise again to give us new life, to create in us an actual new heart. Because literally when he rose from the dead, it's like he created into a glorious body, a new heart body. He, he received that and he gives it to us. Friends, I'm going to pray in a moment. We're going to take communion. And as we take communion, what we're saying in communion, remember when Jesus breaks the bread and he said, this is my new covenant for you. He's saying, I renew my promises to you. I've never failed and I never will. The promise stays the same. I will wash away your sin. And what does it say when he pours out the blood? He takes the cup, he, he pours out the blood, and he said, this blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you drink it and remember me, what are we remembering? that you are washed clean, friends, that there is no more stain on the marker that could stand against you. It is gone. And when we fall in love with this God, he teaches us to hate our sin. And we have a new power to overcome it. It's not simply that we're done doing a few bad things. It's that now we have a new, renewed love, love relationship with a God who is consistently, faithfully, unfailingly there, and repeatedly 